Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, as some of you may know me, I'm actually a, a German minor at Princeton. I've studied German for a long, long time. I have a huge passion for the German culture. I uh, worked and, and lived there for a little bit. Uh, and today I'm welcoming one of the most renowned German economists to my show. His name is Professor Dr. Michael Hütter. Uh, Dr. Hütter is the director of the German Economic Institute, Institut der Deutschen Wirtschaft, uh, one of the most important think tanks in Germany based out of Cologne. Uh, he previously served on the German Council of Economic Experts and was the chief economist of Dekabank. Uh, Dr. Hütter, thank you so much uh, for joining me today uh, out of uh, Germany. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, wonderful to have this uh, possibility today in this interesting time and uh, yeah, I'm very interesting what your questions may be. Thank you so much. I, as you said, if we uh, didn't have Zoom, we, if we didn't have the pandemic, we wouldn't able, be able to even think about doing a remote podcast interview. So this is, uh, this is great. I, uh, I guess maybe we can start with a very broad question. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your background and also uh, the work you do uh, at the German Economic Institute? I think a lot of our listeners might not know the importance of the, of the Institute. Yeah, let me start with my personal uh, track record or um, experience over time. I started studying not only economics, but also history, because my idea was uh, there's always a good uh, chance to understand more if you bring in the historical time in what is in our uh, economic system. So it's, it's maybe a little bit opposite to what most of the, or the mainstream of economics just is uh, it's about today. It's based on mathematics, it's more formal, but I think if you want to try to understand what's going on in the real world and we have the connection from theoretical approach to practical insights, then the historical experience is uh, very important and give you a feeling for some different situations we are in. That, from this, I had the chances to start my professional career, as you said, at the German Council of Economic Advisors. Um, this is different to the US Council of Economic Experts because the German Council um, is based on a special law and it's totally independent. It's not a part of the administration in Bonn or Berlin now. And uh, we have to deliver every year an annual report and I was the Secretary General, the Head of Staff. So it was the first position I had the chance to learn a very in very broad sense, very comprehensive view on economic issues and also to understand the political background, not only to see what is in the idea of the theoretical argument, what is the power of the political uh, transform transformation of that. So this is always a different approach coming from the realistic side of the world, not only from the theoretical. And then I, I moved on to a bank and in the, in the bank, um, I had the chance to learn a lot about capital markets, the behavior of investors, the sales side and the buy side research, um, and uh, to do it in so far very different as before in the council. In the council, we had twice a year forecast on GDP. In a bank, you have to do it nearly daily basis, uh, you know, in a weekly at least. So you have to, at, at every time, there's a new information from Asia, for example, a new information from Wall Street, what will be the impact for the German economic situation, what will be the impact for bond market or for the, for the private equity sector. So 
this was a totally different uh, time frame to work. And then I, in 2004, I um, um, was the director of the German Economic Institute. And it's a, a wonderful position because it's a private think tank. It's only, it's different to all the other German institutes. They're based on, they are paid by the tax payers. We are paid on the uh, voluntary basis from the people who want to say, yes, it's good to have a private based strong voice for the market economy. And our institute was founded in 1951, just after the second world war and after the foundation of the new Republic. And then they also said, let's have such a strong voice for the free and democratic market system. Um, and the traditional idea was to coming from, came in this time, came from Ludwig Erhard, because in the 1940s, early 1940s, Ludwig Erhard, the German Minister of Economic Affairs, um, and the father of the German um, miracle, of the German economic miracle, German Wirtschaftswunder, had such a small institute in Berlin. And this was the idea, start again, and this was in 1951. So we are interested in all topics of the structural change, uh, in which way new jobs will be created, uh, what is the innovation system, um, what the difference between uh, uh, some locations would have, let's say, the same starting point, what was the reason for the differentiation over time. Uh, we try to understand integration and trade. So European integration is of very importance for us, as well as international trade to understand the, the uh, rules-based um, multilateral order and so on. So we have really been focusing on all things which are interesting for the medium term and the structural change. And in addition to that, we also do something in uh, forecasting um, on GDP side, labor market, uh, as well as some capital market indicators. We are involved. We have uh, all in all 200 uh, collaborators on the uh, on the scientific side, on the research side in our um, institute. On the other side, we, we do some media stuff. We have a consulting branch. We have an academy. We have a junior program for for school education. But 200 more or less are engaged in economic research, and we are also um, most of the time. Uh, I mean, most of, a lot of time we are spending in Berlin. We are part of the political debate. We are asked for advice. We are a member of some uh, different councils, uh, expert commissions, and uh, what all is uh, on the way just in Berlin. So you can imagine there's some uh, lot to do just now in the corona pandemic. There's a lot to do looking on the energy change. There's a lot to do to discuss on digitization, on demographic change, and the European integration perspective. So only in a few words, uh, a little bit too, too much, I suppose, but some words on <laughs> A lot of themes to, to cover, a big task for us ahead today. But I guess maybe we can focus uh, on Germany first. Uh, a very broad question would be, what do you see as the most urgent uh, challenges faced by the German economy today? I guess both in terms of the, the context of the Corona crisis, but even slightly before the Corona crisis, what did you see as uh, what the German economy needs to tackle? Um, we try to understand what maybe the impact of Corona on the German economy or the German um, business sector. We have to see that the last decade since the financial crisis was more or less a golden decade. Because since the year 2010, we were very successful in creating new jobs. Never before in unified Germany, we had uh, so much people 
in the working force engaged. 80% of the people between the age of 20 to 65 are engaged in the labor market at a very affordable compensation basis. So um, this increase of jobs, uh, the, increase, the increase of the employment ratio, for me is the most important um, symptom or signal, whatever you want to say, for the last decade, for this golden decade. The German business model was successful to bring more people as ever before in jobs. And from this, uh, from this point, bringing people to jobs, we were able to balance the budget because there's no chance to have a balanced budget if you are working against a bad labor market performance. So, but this is the whole story of the last decade. And this just finished a little bit two and a half years ago when the in manufacturing sector uh, entered a recession phase. And in springtime this year, we had some hope that recession may be end and that the overall economy will come back to a stronger growth than last year. But then in the second quarter, the uh, corona pandemic uh, happened where the shutdown or lockdown of the economy worked uh, in a dramatic way. Minus 9.5% was a shrinkage of GDP from first to second quarter. And um, this, the, first, the first reaction of politics was to secure liquidity. And the first step of the crisis or the first, first, first round of the crisis, liquidity matter. Because if you have no chance to sell something and you have no chance to buy something, then you have to secure liquidity to be, uh, 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 to have some room for more activity, room for maneuver for the future. Uh, otherwise the, the business models will implode and all the jobs will, uh, will uh, be deleted. And the German um, answer, the German economic policy answer was in just secure of liquidity in the, in the companies and stabilization of jobs using the short-time working scheme we traditionally have in Germany and we improved in the last financial crisis and we could use this instrument again. So for the first step, the companies had to see in which way they can stabilize their business model. Then in the turning from the second to the third quarter, something became better. As you have heard, the third quarter had an increase of GDP of 8.5% compared to the second, minus 9.5 plus 8.5. So it really was like a Y shape. Um, and uh, this gave, uh, gave back some confidence to the, uh, to the private agents in our system saying that the system overall will stable. And it is, it's a very, it, very uh, short time, it came back to the trend before trend in, in, in order statistics, for example, trend in production and so on. The first um, shock was symmetric. It was a shock on the supply side and on the demand side of the, of the economy. In the second phase of the um, crisis, in, the, in the, the, the attempt to adjust to this different new world, this new normality, the new normal, they had a, we realized an ongoing differentiation uh, across the economy. So the manufacturing had more chance to, to, to revive. Some part of the service sector, really bad shape. Um, restaurants, uh, hotels, so-called so social uh, consumption, uh, music halls, uh, theater, and so on. 
private event management and everything. It's still, there was no chance to come back even in summertime. So we then this differentiation was industry came back and the service sector to a certain degree was on hold. Despite of that, the third quarter was plus 8.5. Uh, so to your question, this was a management in crisis. And I would say that the headline is coming from uncertainty to risk. This is the, the, both the two notions from Frank Knight in his wonderful book on uncertainty and risk. Uncertainty, you have no chance to give an, uh, degree of of, um, of, of of the quality of the risk is yes it's it will happen and nobody has an experience from the past from theoretical model there's no chance to assess the risk then in the in the in the second step give the give the people back the chance to uh, to assess the individual situation and to have a new basis for forecasting and this change in exactly in the third quarter but no, we are looking forward. We are just in the light lockdown, the so-called light lockdown. Today in Germany, in Berlin, uh, Minister, uh, Chancellor Merkel and the prime ministers of the state are just in this, in this hour are negotiating what they will do and decide to the end of the year. Uh, the, uh, the light lockdown normally should end in the end of November. But as you know, the infection rates are still too high. So they will prolong this and we will see what will happen. So the fourth quarter will, will weep. The service sector will still on hold. The manufacturing is more or less stable. And the, pro the, the, the challenge for economic policy is to have no infection, <laughs> use this word, from, from service sector to manufacturing sector. And in manufacturing then, and that's what your challenge question was about, in the medium term, we have to focus on decarbonization, on demographic change, and for a long time already, but still for the future, the digital transformation of our production scheme. Um, and this is, will come back more and more in the first uh, the first uh, the seat or the first row. Um, and the pandemic, we will hope, and this is our idea, we'll, we'll go in the, back, in, in the backyard uh, next year when we have the vaccine and we can have a different situation, maybe just starting in springtime. So the, the, the story is we are coming back to the structural challenges of the economy. There's a lot to unpack there, Dr. Hütter. I, I guess uh, perhaps before we dive into the corona crisis, just quickly recapping uh, what you talked about in, in terms of the golden decade and German, Germany's labor market. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about the, the, the German economic structure under what kind of system it, it operates under? Because in the U.S., people think U.S. is, you know, always deregulating. It is a, you know, very capitalistic sense of society. In, the, in Germany, the, the sense that you give people is much more, uh, you know, uh, how, how, how would I say it? Socially democratic, uh, slightly socialist. You have that kind of bent uh, so that the uh, societal... Uh, welfare system is better, the social safety net is better, and therefore I think uh, social solidarity is also much better so that even during the corona pandemic early on the on onset, people looked to Germany for a lot, a lot of leadership at, at that moment. So I would love to hear a little bit more yeah. of your thoughts on that front. Yeah, let's try to, uh, I will try to, to, to explain a little bit more on this. Um, the uh, crucial point is here you have to be an historian because you have to look back. Um, to the 19th century, the phase of industrialization. And the most important uh, point to understand the German situation today 
is that the industrialization in the 19th century, Germany started in a federalistic order. We had no central state until 1871. In 1871, the German Reich was founded, but during the nearly the whole uh, 19th century, we had only 35 different states, 35 different states, very small, tiny little states, some more a little bit larger, but 35 states. The impact was, and that's in very easy to understand compared to France. France was a central state focused and managed, focused on Paris and managed by Paris where the emperor lived, lived at this time. Each of the imperial of the small in the small German states had to offer something to the people. They made more or less locational policy. They made economic policy at home 35 times. So they started just here, they started just there. There was not only looking for Paris or looking for Berlin. This was a decentralized starting of industrialization. That means until today, we have a lot of regional clusters and networks in manufacturing, which started 150, 200 years ago. And this is a specific story of Germany, different to, to, to Great Britain, different to France and as well to the United States, as, a, as we all know, a different political story in this time. So Germany had this impact of federalistic structure. These are um, regional clusters in the landscape uh, of manufacturing today uh, merged with some service sector activity, important infrastructure, education, high schools and, and universities of applied sciences. This is a mixture to make the, lands, the rural areas in Germany landscape uh, economic successful. Still today, they are working in an ecosystem. So the starting point for the ecosystem was not yesterday, it was long before in the 19th century. And the second point is, if you are a, an emperor of such a small state in Thuringia or wherever, you are close to the people. The people ask you what you're doing for us. If you will avoid a revolution and you had the experience of the revolution in the end of the 18th century in France, you have to deliver something. So the German answer was um, not only to have a, a strong police system against the socialist or communist parties, on the other hand, offer something to make the state attractive. And this is a social security idea. 1884, the German emperor offered uh, a paper to the people starting the Sozialversicherung, the welfare state. In, in, for the elderly and uh, in healthcare, the most important income risks for the people in this time. So this is a starting point to work together. If you have a social security system, uh, both sides of the labor market, employees and employer, and trade unions and employer associations are asked for cooperation. And this is the third pillar, working together in a social partnership model or what we, what we call autonomy for the wage negotiation partners. And this is still, uh, these are still the most important pillars of the German system. And my argument is you can't understand this only if you're looking back to the 19th century. We could discuss this for hours and hours today, but I only will give you this idea and maybe some of the, some of the people who look here in will have some question even more and they're invited to send me a mail or whatever. I will be happy to give you some more information on that. But this is the main important point is to understand the situation in the 21st century Germany, you have to look back to the 19th century.
And, and if we go um, slightly closer to, to, to these days and looking at the economic development in the past a decade or, or 20 years, it seems that Germany's economy has really employed a very unique kind of model. As you were saying, the, the employers and employees are asked to uh, cooperate and be in a co-partnership. And sometimes you negotiate your wages with your employers. It's not a too capitalistic of a system. And sometimes even the government also held stock in, in companies. And, and it seems that it did not hinder growth, right? It, it's a very good cautionary tale for somewhere like, like the US. So, so you would say that the golden decade really and, and this kind of social structure allowed Germany to flourish uh, in, a, in a way uh, that other countries couldn't and, and handle. Yeah, I would say yes. And it's combined with a uh, characteristic that's just, I think, very important in all uh, of the uh, industrialized world and in all countries of the uh, states of the industrialized world. That is the regional balance or regional imbalance of economic growth. And the German situation is that we specifically due to the German unification and the poor starting uh, situation just in 1990 in the East Lander, in the New Lander, in the former communist part of Germany, we, today we have a very balanced regional situation. The difference between income per capita, for example, or productivity has reduced and we are more stable compare this to the United States, it's totally different. And I think what's important also to understand in both countries, if you look on, on this aspect in the United States, the mobility of the workforce, the labor mobility is on the historical lowest level. If you on the, look on the data from the Bureau of Census, you see that uh, labor statistics, you see that the labor mobility came down since the 1940s, decade by decade, and they're just on the lowest level ever. So the, the American idea, you can move on, you can uh, migrate to another spot and then you have a chance there you, to, for a new job. So the people are moving to the jobs. It's, it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a dream, but it's not more a realistic dream in the United States. Germany started in the 1950s, regional policy bring jobs to the people. So in this, I would say yes, what you, to, uh, the German, system is more stable just now, but we also fear globalization. We have a fear towards digitization. The people asking what will be the impact of all these um, um, uh, trends for my uh, individual um, uh, perspective, for my individual life conditions, for my daily life organization, for the perspective of my compensation and so on. So the, 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 comp the competition the degree of competition increased over time. We have to do more in the same period of time. We have to increase productivity all over uh, every year as, as the same worldwide. But the regional um, balance gives some compensation to that as well as the German welfare state, as well as the German social partnership and the German education system with the vocational training. The vocational training often gives you the chance to have an an incremental change of uh, capacities in very different um, fields of activity. And you can change here, you can move there, uh, but you can, let's say starting from a technical uh, basis, um, uh, so on. So this is, this is a story and in the golden decade, we were very successful international markets. We bring a lot of money via the export base uh, to Germany and invest here, not so much in the public sector, even more in the private sector, but this will be another discussion, but this is more or less the background for the for the golden decade. Yes, 
I guess looking ahead, you've previously written that Germany has neglected public investment over the past two decades and will need to make uh, concentrated efforts to address the consequences of uh, an aging population and also to decarbonize the economy. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on that front. What steps would you uh, recommend uh, on that front? Yeah, to make it very simple, public investment was the loser of the, of the last decade. Why? Uh, we started entering the last decade with the new public, uh, with the, the new regulation um, um, on public debt. There's a so-called debt break in our constitution, which was brought into the constitution in 2009. So in the last decade, the federal state and the, the lender had to adjust to the regulation of the um, debt break. And it's uh, a special notion of the former German Ministry of Finance, Wolfgang Schäuble, was to reach the black zero. Uh, black zero means to have every time, each year, from one to another, a balanced budget on the state level or the federal level and in the social security system. Since 2014, yes, we had a balanced budget in the federal level since 2012, two years earlier on in, in overall uh, in the system. Uh, but uh, the one way to achieve this was on the, on, the, on the expenditure side was to reduce investment because for example, the, the municipalities at the local level are to 80% responsible for public investment in Germany. The other 20% are coming from the federal state and from the lender, but it's maybe the same in the United States. Um, in your local and regional environment, there's the most important investment activities, the streets, all the other infrastructure and so on. So the, 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 the pressure on the on the on the balance sheet of the of the communities of the local authorities was so strong that they had no alternative than to reduce public investment. The public investment is the most variable um, um, uh, 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 kind of public expenditure. Um, and at the end of the of, after a decade, you, then you see the negative impact. Some you, for a long time you can go with the infrastructure. For a long time you the streets are fine. Um, the energy system may be fine, but then you have um, some problems. And we just see that there's a quality, lack of quality, for example, and the lack of, of infrastructure, uh, specifically in the, the digital transform, in the, the digital infrastructure. We are working hard, but it's uh, after a decade of underinvestment, it needs some time to come back to a uh, capital formation as it should be. It seems that the, the coronavirus crisis will really impact this situation, right? Because um, I guess what you were saying about balanced budget was also part of a greater trend since 2008 when Europe as a whole enacted a lot, a lot of austerity measures to its own membership countries. And there was the very famous paper by uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff that argued that austerity policies and balanced budgets would really be important for, for an economy. Yeah. And, and, and we saw that having kind of a bad impact on a lot of the Eastern European countries and also South European countries. Uh, so it seemed, by, by the way, right after the coronavirus crisis happened, IMF said you no longer have to uh, enact austerity measures after the corona pandemic. Mm -hmm. The countries are allowed to have deficits and increase in public spending. So do you think uh, the consensus has turned in some way? Um, a little bit and the conditions um, um, have changed. Um, first of all, in 2010, it was quite clear for the German government that Germany at the 
at the center of the Eurozone, at the center of European Union, has to meet the Maastricht criteria. There's no, no chance to stay out. So the German policy was right to say we, had, we should come back to the Maastricht criteria, 60% on debt ratio and 3% on deficit ratio. The 3% deficit ratio was no problem. It was very easy to, to achieve in 2011, 12, and so on. But it was harder to work on the um, debt ratio. If you know, if, if you have an increase by 20 percentage points during the financial crisis, the debt ratio, debt to GDP ratio was 60% before and 80% after the financial crisis, you had to reduce by 20%. So you have two ways to do it. Grow harder and stronger. If you will have a, a stronger growth, the GDP will make it easier and you have to work via the, um, the management of the public, public uh, uh, budgets. They tried both and they were successful in the end of the day. So, so far it's fine, but no, something has changed. First, the interest rate GDP growth relation. Until 2010, it was a long-standing experience um, that the interest rate was higher than the GDP growth rate in nominal as well as in real terms, doesn't matter. So um, that means you had to uh, look for very productive investment if a debt finance public investment will offer a higher potential growth in the medium term, so then you can finance back. Um, if the interest rate is lower as a GDP growth rate, then it's something like a Ponzi scheme. It's very easy. You, uh, you, you can use the public debt and you will not create at the same time a burden for the future generation. So you can do something more in investment, you add some more time, but it's also true in a world of a different interest rate GDP growth uh, relationship, you have to look on the institutions. You have to accept that, for example, for the Eurozone, the Maastricht Treaty criteria are important. You have to accept that there's something in our constitution. So the question is how long you will have time. Last year, last crisis, we had a 10 year time after the financial crisis to come back on the feasible or sustainable economic uh, and financial situation. No, we should have more time. And this is, I would say, my interpretation of the IMF. Let's have 20 years, doesn't matter because we have a situation where the interest rate is below the GDP growth rate. And that will hold on in our uh, calculation for the next decades. Why? The most important point is the aging of societies. So this is, um, this is not only financial repression on monetary policy, it's something like you would name it demographic repression. Yeah? In an aging society, there is an overhang of, of, uh, of savings and there's uh, capital abundance and there's no problem and we have time. So no need for austerity, but also look on the, look on the institutions. I see. Because in an aging society, there's this, uh, I guess, uh, what people would call a savings glut in, in, in the sense yeah. that a lot of people it's are very, very rich. And so you, you should use that to, to stimulate further public investment instead of allowing the younger generation to build up those dramatic household debt uh, when they take on mortgages and auto loans and things like that. So th there needs to be some kind of program. You can say the, the notion of savings glut, 
or what Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk, the most important uh, Austrian economist and finance minister, an economist who worked on capital theory in explaining uh, the reasons for the real interest rate, he argued with the time preference. Normally, you underestimate future needs, normally. But in an aging society, the situation living as an elderly, living in a different perspective, living in a different uh, uh, surrounding, they have to work for and you have to save for the situation. There's no more need for compensation of, of uh, not, not to compensate, not, not to consume today. So if you have, a, you're, you're willing to accept that you have to save some money for the uh, stabilization of the living standard for the future if you're uh, in such a situation. So and in the world of an aging population, there is no more in the same way an underestimation of future needs. So you don't need a compensation for less consumption today. And the compensation for less consumption was a real interest rate. I see. So that was the issue of uh, aging population. And what about the digital infrastructure and decarbonization? Because this, this article from OECD that actually asserts mm -hmm. that Germany's digital infrastructure and innovation ecosystem are lacking behind other advanced mm -hmm. economies. And you've written that investment in communication infrastructure is long overdue. And it's very interesting because some argue that Germany lacks the type of uh, regional clusters, clustered ecosystem like Silicon Valley, even though very previously we just talked about Germany's, some of the regional clusters had a very strong supportive system for the social welfare. So uh, how do you see that's the solution for, for that front? I think on the one hand, we, have, we need a um, clear framework of regulation for this path of decarbonization. So we have time until 2050. In 2050, the European Union decided to be CO2 neutral or zero greenhouse gas emission. On the way to that, we need a lot of infrastructure investment supporting the companies in their transformation of the production. But it's important to have stable regulation on that so that the, comp that the, 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 the companies, that the entrepreneurs can uh, rely on stable expectations. And, make decision about in investment for that. At the same time, we need this investment for infrastructure, as you said, and this investment for infrastructure is of, uh, it's immense. We calculated for German, for only for Germany, nearly 500 billion euros in a 10 years time. That means nearly 50 billion per year to address all these needs in the energy, uh, the production of energy, a different uh, traffic situation, uh, housing. We need a lot of housing uh, in, in investment in housing to reduce the, he the heating, uh, uh, heating as a uh, source for CO2 emissions. And uh, together with that, we need a lot of investment, research, and uh, in development in, in, um, in public um, universities and, and private universities to have this background of innovation. And this all together. Uh, Make it possible. We'll, we'll make it possible for the future, but it's a, it's a tough work because uh, only 30 years left until 2050. So it's uh, I remember very well the year 2000. That's 20 years ago. It's not so far away. So if you see what was um, the idea in the year 2000, what we could achieve within 20 years' time, we were not so successful. For example, the Lisbon goals from the European Union, um, and looking forward, we. 30 years 
is not so far away. So we have to start to invest just now and to make clear what is the regulatory framework. That means, for example, the emission trading scheme in Europe, uh, which only uh, is, uh, addressed the manufacturing sector and energy production, and it had, has also to address traffic and heating. I see. And I guess the, since we're talking about Germany, we have to talk about the auto industry, the automobile industry, which has, which has long been a key driver for economic growth and the backbone of German innovation. Uh, but it is also one of the industries most affected by decarbonization. And uh, I guess we, we must be talking about, oh, Tesla, the rise of Tesla, the rise of electric vehicles, how will Daimler and, and you know, uh, and uh, respond to those things. So I would love to hear your your. Uh, thoughts on that front. Mm -hmm. um, I think most important is to be open to all possible or all thinkable technologies for decarbonization. There is uh, electromobility, there is hydrogen with fuel cell, uh, using fuel cells in the car. Um, there, but there's also the traditional combustion engine with some different green fuel. So we, we have, have to use everything together. We have also to ask for a mixture of uh, hybrid techniques because um, if you have a car which is, can, can switch from the uh, electromobility to the combustion engine, then it should be quite clear that inside the cities on the short distance traffic, the, the electromobility is the best you can have also looking on the, on the, on the other kind of, of emissions from driving. But if you're going a far, long distance yeah, from, from New York to, to Chicago or whatever, or from Munich to Berlin or from Cologne um, uh, to Dortmund, then please use, uh, then you can use the combustion engine because if you're on a stable level of usage, then the CO2 emission will also be reducible. So this is the task we have to answer. The problem is that the regulation is very inefficient. The European regulation here in traffic is saying that in the average of a fleet, for example, from BMW cars, should be only have an emission of 95 uh, gram um, CO2. That means nobody knows in the end what is the volume of emission from this fleet, because uh, if are more cars in, the average is only defined. So. The impact for the, uh, for the OEMs, for the automobile sector, is that BMW, the same as uh, Daimler, saying, okay, then we have to push e-mobility because otherwise we cannot reduce the CO2 emission in the average of our fleet. But this is not the efficient way to do. The most efficient way where it should be to have a CO2 price also via the, 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 the gasoline or the, 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 um, the fuel. So if the fuel production is part of the emission trading scheme, then you will have also a CO2 price. This will um, change the relative prices in uses to different kinds of, of, uh, of machines in your car. And then you have a, a new mixture and you are technology open. Yeah, you are not only forcing on uh, electromobility, you can do it also in a different way. And this is a tough job. Um, if you ask the, the, the German automobile sector, they do have some ideas, 
but nobody really has a solution what is the transformation of the whole system. And there's a long way to go, to go and therefore we need a stable, stable and consistent regulation. Unfor unfortunately, we do not have it. We have this ETS for manufacturing and energy production, it's fine, but we should enlarge it to traffic and heating. And if traffic is in, then we are more technology open. This is the task we have. We are working for, on, but we will see. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic than a year before when I see just, I realize just a push on electromobility in Germany and Tesla is uh, a proof on that. You know that the biggest company and the biggest battery cell production should all be also be based close to Berlin. Um, and uh, two Japanese investors decided to start big uh, battery cell productions uh, in Germany, one in Thuringia, the other in the Saar Valley. Also, this is interesting to see. Maybe the structural change will be uh, faster than expected. But we have, for example, in Germany, 42 million private cars. Just know um, electromobility is below 500,000. Wow. You can imagine wow. it's a long way to go. It is a very long way to go. I, I guess the, the last question before we move on to a globalization, one last question about Germany and decarbonization. So uh, since the, we, we just experienced the global pandemic, we're still in the middle of it. A lot of countries are proposing you know, green investments, uh, very South Korea, UK, uh, and they're facing some level of praise and also criticism because a lot of people say, are saying, I don't really care what you tell me what to drive in 2030 because I don't have food right now. And so mm -hmm. I, I think Boris Johnson from the UK, he was saying like in 2030, you should not have fossil fuel cars. And people were saying, what are you saying? Volvo is not gonna produce fossil fuel based cars in 2030 anyways, you wouldn't be able to buy them. So, and, and the fact that you are talking about green investments in 2050, is ignoring the current economic challenges. But there are also people who would say this is really good because you need this, you need green investments out of the Corona crisis. So I would love to uh, hear where you stand on this kind of issue, this kind of balance between policy pushing for change and also recognizing the reality right now. Um, my position is to say that we need a, a very ambitious and clear target for the medium term, 2050. But we um, should then start in an overall consistent system. The problem is that politics has the always the idea to do something spe special, something here, a detailed regulation there, another specific hint uh, 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 or, or tax subsidization there. So you have a mixture and very inconsistent system. It's costly and it's inefficient. That's a problem I have. So I would say, yes, we should not discuss the target. They, we, we do have the problem of climate change, no doubt about it. We have to work on it. And the target is uh, CO2 in, in neutrality in 2050. But let's focus on the way and let's focus on the transmission from the status quo to a future-oriented uh, production scheme. And the problem is, as you made clear in your, your question, in which way we can convince the people who maybe have short-sighted some other problems. They see what is the what is the impact for my job? Is my job on the loser side or on the winner side? Up to now, for example, as an engineer in the German automobile sector, we are on the winner side, but maybe tomorrow we are on the loser side. 
And you see this fears reflected in political action. For example, we have some cities in Germany which are high, very high uh, income per capita due to a production plant of, automob of, of, of the automobile sector. And at the same time, they have the highest approval rate of the right-wing party. Yeah, so here, here you see the political risk. And this political risk may, in the end of the day, come back as an e economic risk, because if this political risk will change the perspective of economic policy, then we, we have a very different situation. So this is always my point. Yes, we have to do this, but first of all, let, don't uh, discuss what is un unavoidable, that's quite clear. Let's focus on an open technology, open way. This would be the, the, the starting point, and therefore we need a consistent, we need one consistent CO2 price. So, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm sometimes, it's typical for, for, for politicians to, to um, they don't want to install systems, they uh, even more want, to, they on a, want to, to act on a daily basis. They will show something to do. But if you have a consistent system installed, it should work and it will work, as we all see. The ETS in itself is working and we have to adjust over time, but it's, it's, it was installed several years ago. So for the politicians today, what they can do? They have to act, they want to act. A new regulation here, a new regulation there. And that's not the way it will work, I'm, I'm sure. Speaking of a consistent uh, framework for policymaking, I guess it's a perfect transition to globalization, which at least at face seems to be somewhat of a consensus or somewhat of a consistent system in the past 20, 30 years, because uh, I guess you've spoken about the end of the second era of globalization and the challenges shaping the third era of globalization. So maybe perhaps we can start by defining this term second era or the first era or third era, but it also seemed for me based on my shallow understanding that globalization has been quite consistent in terms of uh, you know, pushing for free trade, pushing for economic liberalization, financial liberalization. So uh, do you see that as a coherent system as well? So uh, maybe we can pivot a little. Yeah, maybe let's start with the, um, with the uh, looking back to the first phase of globalization which started in the mid of the 19th century. Um, and it was uh, in, uh, started by the experience that um, trade will help us to create wealth um, and that the uh, migration in itself was a, a driving force behind this globalization, the migration, for example, in the middle of the 19th century from Europe to the United States, from China to the United States, the first uh, big movements in migration in this period. Then we had an um, important innovation, the telegraph, and we had a new media world using daily newspapers several times a day in the morning paper, the, mid, the, the noon paper, the evening standard and so on. The people were reading all the time and they had the same information more or less in this uh, globalized world. And um, the, the uh, integration of the, the colonies was um, organized via these specific policy towards colonies. So the, the Great Britain, for example, and France uh, on the other side. This first globalization stopped with the beginning of the First World War, then it was finished. And that was the, the, back, uh, the backfire from hierarchies, from politics against networks, because networks are uh, in a horizontal way uh, organizing economic activities with 
on the basis on freedom and, and responsibility, but they're working together as uh, comparative advantages, more, for example, are appear. And uh, the First World War was uh, a backfire, so to say, from hierarchies towards this world of networks of liberalization. And then it took a long time. In the, the next starting, the starting point for the, the, the first globalization, just to say, had a fin, had, a, had a, a, a clear defined the 1st of August 1914. The second globalization started in October 1978, when Deng Xiaoping gave a speech at the People's Congress in, in Beijing, saying that we will use the idea of the capitalist order in our political system to have to create income per capita, to have a higher level on wealth, and we will do it together with all other uh, countries in the world. But we are stick to our communist order. So there is no way from market economy to democracy, but we use this capitalist system. And this was a starting point for a dramatic um, globalization. The difference between the second and the first globalization, the first globalization was of, about trades and migration, more or less, and trade of goods, of uh, Final goods. The second globalization was defined by a trade of intermediate goods because we had a globalization of the value chain. This is a characteristic of this globalization. And what we see, and this is the idea of the exhaustion of globalization, that since the financial crisis, some indicators say, uh, make clear that there is no further uh, 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 progress on integration. If you look on the uh, uh, trade elasticity, for example, both the, the increase of world trade to the increase of world production. In this high globalization time, it was above one. That means that the increase of world trade was higher than of world production. Just now it's one, it's the same or below one. That means there's no further integration along the value chain. There's something of reorganization. Second, we see that we have no more the same that than before countries in the world which super growth with more than 4% of GDP every year. This is also a characteristic of a very dynamic globalization as in the 1990s and the uh, first years after 2000. And this, the third is that the, the capital allocation is more or less a story of the Northern Hemisphere. So there is no trickle down to the Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, there's no transfer of wealth, no transfer of productivity and so on. So this is in our assessment, it makes clear that this second globalization will come to an end to a certain degree. Then we have the public uh, criticism, the political uh, counteractions from Trump, from Brexit, the struggle between China and the United States, the struggle between the Trump administration and the European Union and so on, all this made uh, made clear that the idea of the rules-based multilateral order is more or less over. We have to start now in the second chance. Maybe we will have a restart with Joe Biden, but uh, this is still, the proof has still to be delivered. So uh, <laughs> um, I would say, yes, we have, we have have a chance to come back to this uh, system of cooperation, the system of networks and alliances, but uh, then we have to do it. And even the Germans, as Europeans have to change something, that's quite clear. I guess this is the perfect time to bring in your book, 
exhausted globalization between I have transatlantic. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> on the, on the screen. If you're listening, you can watch this on YouTube. But it's exhausted globalization between the transatlantic orientation and the Chinese way, and in which you define globalization as the tension between hierarchies and networks. And that's a really fascinating idea. So maybe we could elaborate a little bit more on that part. Yeah, sure. Uh, the idea came from a uh, lecture I heard in Stanford uh, four, more than four years ago when I was a guest professor in Stanford. Neil Ferguson gave a lecture there at the Stanford Institute of Economic Policy Research. And he outlined his idea of uh, networks and hierarchies and this book published then in 2018. But it, I was convinced from the first moment because in a historical perspective to understand uh, what are the uh, drivers of a dynamic in, in world trade, for example, what are the drivers uh, in, in migration or in knowledge diffusion. Um, then you have um, sometimes the, the primacy of the networks, then the net, everything is open, um, um, there is no regulation, there's a self-definition of standards in the system for the participants to be part of that. Look, for example, the, the internet. The internet started 20, 25 years ago in the definition of standard. Uh, one language was open to all members and it was defined in the system. There was no political idea behind. There was no political um, actor behind, no, no public agent, something like that. And now we see the backfire from hierarchies thing we have to manage if we have to define an order we have to regulate something in germany in, in, in europe sorry we had this uh, gdpr uh, as a global uh, maybe as a, a gold standard for for regulation of the of um, this internet world we are just working on some other issues in the, on the european level so um you can see this struggle in itself is not a negative one. It has not, not always the outcome will be the first world war, but um, it's, a, it's a balancing and a rebalancing. It's pushing ahead while network, it's pushing back while the, the hierarchies so say, oh, we, we need some order. We need some rules and for the, for the procedures and for the, for the behavior in such a new system. And just we see this. So if you go back, you can understand a little bit from this ping pong, I would say, between hierarchies <laughs> and networks, um, the dynamic phase and the more stabilization phase, the consolidation phase, um, and coming again to a new open system. And uh, for us, as my colleagues and the authors of this book, this was a very good idea or very good system or concept to understand the process of globalization. The, 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 something is going ahead, something is trying to backfire, and so on. Uh, where do you see European Union's role or Germany's role in this third era of globalization, where its previous role in, this, in the second era? Because mm -hmm. in, the, in a positive, um, the positive uh, uh, chance may be to be a role model. It seems that Europe is precisely struggling with its own integration, and, and so many people are doubting whether but this, European but Union. You can say you can say this is a problem, but you can say that's a chance, because it makes clear that even in Europe, not everything is defined. There is uh, always room for um, new action, room for criticism, room for reorganization. Uh, we were able very fast in summertime to define a new. 
um, source of public uh, finance, the Next Generation EU Fund, which offers the idea of an investment union uh, in Europe as a part of European integration, uh, totally different as before, because traditionally we had the European budget based on the contributions paid from all member states. No, now we, we have a chance to have a second pillar, investments, public investments in Europe, European networks, European standards, European education, whatever, and it's based on bonds. It's based from Euro, on Euro bonds because bonds issued by the European Union. It's still, it's, from my perspective, it's totally underestimated. It's not the Hamiltonian approach or Hamiltonian moment the German finance minister talked about, but it's an, it offers a window of opportunity to, to build a new pillar, the second pillar in our financial architecture of the European Union for the investment union. But coming back to your question about the what could, what is the, the, the impact of from Europe or Germany for the world or what's the interesting part? I think if we, if we will able to manage these conflicts and we will able to solve the problems we have in decarbonization and, and so on, then we um, make something like a role model for the world. This is the place to be. Here, uh, everything is balanced. We have some conflicts, but we are able to solve our problems. And um, Germany, when, if, as, I, as we discussed before, with a specific model for a long time, especially from the Anglo-Saxon side, from Anglo-Saxon investment banks, that said it's outdated. It is old fashioned. There's no chance for the future. And we were very successful. We had a golden decade just behind us. And I would say the people are asking for purpose. We have this debate on purpose in companies. What is your idea not only to serve in the markets? Yes, that's fine, but what's your purpose? Why, what's, what's, the, what's the, the, the basis for your existence, uh, existence as a company in the market system? And you have a value-based proposition and you have the people ask for. And I think we are not so bad to doing that. And in this way, Germany and the European Union may have a chance to be a role model for some other, but the negative risk is on the, the uh, the, the downside risk, as you may say in capital markets terms, the downside risk is that Europe will always overregulate it um, uh, like something like a standstill society. And this is not really attractive. So we have to focus on the chance. But I think the chance are not so bad. Uh, you're very optimistic. That, that, is, that is great for our no, listeners. I, I'm, I'm, uh, it's not so open for the people in the United States, but in Germany, if you're coming from some region, some specific regions, you are a pessimist or an optimist. I was born in the Rhineland and the Rhine, people from the Rhineland are from their births on. So uh, they are more optimistic than the other. Uh, you know, I see. you have to see this. You have to make a discount on that. Of course. Yes. Um, so since we are on this topic of improvements, what are the chances, how, uh, some of the possibilities going forward, maybe we can talk about some specific good proposals for EU going forward. Thomas Piketty, the very famous French economist, recently proposed this. His ide ideal in his uh, newest book, Capital Ideology, he's talked about participatory socialism. He talked about how EUs can together establish some kind of, I guess, fiscal sovereignty. Because what we know is in, in EU, you have monetary, um, monetary authority for, for the union. Uh, you have the European Central Bank. So none of the member states can print it at all own money, but you, you don't have a, a fiscal 
union per se. So there's not a one European treasury, each of the countries had their own treasury. So that seemed to cause them a lot of problem back in the Euro crisis and such and so on. So what would be some of your proposals for, for Europe in terms of economic policy going forward? Yeah, this is still the conflict we have. We, we do have a monetary union, but not in the same degree and fiscal union or in the same uh, um, uh, power. Um, we have to organize our fiscal policies in the state on their own, but we have to come together and to accept the, 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 the rules and the general um, um, goals are defined in the Maastricht Treaty and more or less defined in all the fiscal compact and so on. Um, I would say what, what I uh, alluded before to the, the next generation EU. I think that's for me a really an, an, um, of, of opportunities, a new opportunity uh, to have a higher fiscal responsibility on the European level. If you compare European Union with the United States, the problem is that we're on the, on the central level and in Brussels, we do not have any fiscal responsibility. It's only 1.1% 1 .1 of, of the EU GDP. That's really nothing. Yeah? Um, the the uh, state expenditure ratio in Germany is uh, before Corona 44% of GDP. In, uh, in France, it's 56. So it's still quite clear that the, uh, the, the state activity are based on the national level and, and on the democratic uh, system in the member states. But we need some more on the, on the, on the uh, European level. First, next generation EU investment. Second, European Defense Union. I think it's even more important to have that instead of an other kind of fiscal policy uh, integration. Why? If you look at some, for example, Greece, they pay more than 20% uh, from their tax revenues to the, the defense um, uh, expansion. So that's a lot. If you can bring this together and it makes clear that we have only one idea, we will look on our border and look on the enemies outside, but we have no struggle together in, inside the European Union, then a defense union should be another new pillar in the European integration system. And we should not forget in 1954, the National Assembly in Paris declined the idea of the European Defense Union. It was a, uh, just in the early beginning of European integration, the, the idea of a defense union was in. So for me, it's more important uh, than some other, uh, what you said, uh, citing um, um, uh, Piketty of socialized, socialistic, uh, Particip we, participatory socialism, but that was, I guess that was more. Uh, yeah, I, I would say uh, if he will try to understand a little bit more the German system of social partnership, for some of the Germans, it's even enough. <laughs> so, um, but you cannot um, deny that there is, that there are still some past dependencies. As an historian, I would say the tradition from the past is still also on the scene as I explained on the industrial structure and the manufacturing sector in Germany and this uh, regional balanced uh, uh, situation, totally different to France and Great Britain. And this is coming from the 19th century. So this is also true in some other fields of politics or state activity. You cannot deny that there are still some uh, differences due to culture and tradition. And um, from this side, I would work more and even harder on investment union and defense union. 
Dr. Hütter, I, I would like to play devil's advocate here a little bit and just to qu quickly push back. Uh, I guess some people would say globalization and European Union are kind of a tautology, even like a Ponzi scheme, because the only way out of the problems of European integration is further European integration. The only way out of some of the problems caused by globalization is further globalization. So why couldn't we simply tell European Union that this, okay, we tried it for 30 years or whatever, it didn't work. Globalization, likewise, a lot of the developing countries are suffering. They're not doing so well in this unfettered globalization, unfettered free trade. So maybe we should not do it. So what is really preventing that, I guess? Uh, I think the first is we have to realize that each member state is too small to play a role on the world scene. Why do you have mm -hmm. to play a, a role on, on the world scene? You are already each quite well no, off. No, 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 no. We are doing individual. together. Look, for example, in trade policy, uh, we all uh, we have just uh, the, the the answer to Donald Trump was please go to Brussels. If you have we have no answer in Berlin <laughs> to that. Uh, it, it was a very very good position <laughs> to have this. No, to be to be honest, um, on the G G two or G three world, it means United States, China, with or without Europe. This is not the question with or without Germany. Uh, altogether, we are we are we are an economic powerhouse. That's true, but we are not really a powerhouse in the other aspects, which are even so important on the world um, scene. So that means on defense, uh, in our willingness to engage outside. If we have no tradition from the European side to do it together to engage us outside Europe in a freedom mission, for example. For Germany, it's, it's still a really big topic due to our history, as you can imagine. But a lot of things, for example, uh, defining the data room, the European Union as a data room, the only chance is to do it together. And the GDPR is an example that makes clear that the first mover will define the standard in the digital world. And it's the European Union. There was no chance if, 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 the, if Germany had tried to do this, uh, it was the European Union. And it's the only way to have an impact. So you may have the, 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 um, the uh, internet companies, the big internet companies, but we have the idea how to regulate them. And we will do that. And we are in advance. So uh, from this side, yeah, Europe is, is something like a club of um, unpredictable democracies. But democracies in itself are unpredictable as you can just learn in the United States after the election or in due to the election outcome. Um, and it's still true here. And from this side, I think Europe was the best idea we could ever had in the 20th century after two world wars started here and happened here in Europe with a tremendous loss of lives. And so this European integration is always a step ahead, but also a step back because we learn about it. And for example, we have this better regulation idea. Uh, we implemented a system of uh, re-regulation in Europe that you can bring in every member, every uh, association, every NGO can say, oh, this regulation won't work. We can explain this to you. And that was part of the so-called refit body. Uh, it was a commission based in Brussels to then to decide about this uh, um, proposals and we said yeah bring this back to the to the work program of the eu commission and we have a lot of democratic procedures and uh, um, 
ways to integrate the different perspectives and views in the, in the, in the different member states. So there is a good chance. It's quite clear. It's not so easy to handle it with Poland or with Hungary. Just know you can see this, but also this will change. Uh, perhaps we can also dig a little bit deeper into the normative issues of uh, globalization, which your book, Exhaustive Globalization, has really touched on, because the, the famous Harvard economist Danny Roderick wrote in his book, uh, The Globalization Paradox, that even if globalization w could be compatible with faster growth for developing countries, it might be undesirable from the point of view of creating an inclusive and democratic economic system. And this kind of argument is basically saying what is the good of economic growth for if, if it's not actually expanding people's freedom, if it's not actually improving their personal liberty? And we're seeing that in you know, a lot of uh, the very um, well-developed developing countries right now that you know, things are not improving for people's happiness and welfare. So I guess this is the paradox of globalization, right? You have the money going up, but maybe not everything else. Yeah, it's just not, um, it's not coming to a paradise. It's not a simple way. <laughs> yeah. um, and one, as I said earlier, yes, for example, the capital allocation, it's more or less the story of the Western Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere. Um, we do not see the expected trickle-down effects from the, from the industrialized countries to the nearly developed and the developing countries. It's a long way to go, but we have to learn that the, 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 the countries, for example, in sub-Saharan um, meet their own institutions. If there is no institutional stability, there's no chance to bring them uh, to a better standard of living. Um, and we have to learn something about our development policy. Um, in Germany, there was a research area in, in, uh, in Berlin working on um, uh, limited um, uh, statehood in what was exact title, limited statehood uh, and uh, alternative models of governance, something like that. So we have to understand if we are go if we going to deliver a development policy for the third world or for some states in wherever, that they have their own culture and their own tradition and that the institutions may be different. The problem is they should be stable, but they're made different to our institutions. And if they are stable, there's a chance to come in and bring some money and the investments around will help. Our proposal in the book, in Exhaustive Globalization, was that the best way to uh, signal to the international capital markets that in this developing country, something will work better than in the past is to create um, a, a, a pension scheme based on the on the on the on the uh, on, on capital payments from from the, from the uh, from the inhabitants, so to say. You have you need a stable a regulation for a pension scheme makes clear that if the people are invest in their own uh, pension, they have some kind of um, of uh, stability expect or stable expectations. They have a credible perspective that they will stay here and will come. Will, will see the, the, the return on their investment they made in the pensions uh, durings. This could be a better idea of developing um, of development uh, policy that we are traditional delivering. So uh, yeah, um, it's a long way. On the other side, it's also true that the inequality between countries, so the inequality over the world decreased and opposite to that, we had an increase of inequality inside 
the country, specifically in the industrialized world, in the United States, it's remarkable. If you look, just this, this month, the Patterson Institute published a paper bringing together all these facts and figures on uh, uh, income and wealth distribution. And you see this remarkable increase in income inequality in the United States, the, the, the highest level on the GDP coefficient uh, compared to all other industrialized countries. Uh, and they have not in the same way um, a, measurement, a measure of compensation because we do have the welfare state in Germany. Uh, but as you know, the, the United States is different. And then you have to work with all these regional imbalances and you have this higher quality, higher yeah, level of inequality and higher quality of inequality, so, uh, so to say. <laughs> yes, uh, in your book, Exhaust the Globalization, I think it's a good transition from the normative aspect to even a uh, even more normative question, which is that you said standards and quality of the public sphere could be improved or else it would be destroyed by fake news echo chambers, social media. And I think that's another trend that we have seen along the rise of globalization. So how do you foresee us overcoming these challenges for the public forum? You know, more people are obtaining their information from social media platforms, there are more niches, uh, the spectrum of opinions have become much wider. Now you can get information from all over the world, fake news from all over the world. So uh, I would love to hear uh, maybe your uh, <laughs> opt optimism on that side. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure if I'm really optimistic on that side, because um, the dynamic in media is against the traditional system of media. Um, the uh, social medias uh, are coming up, and uh, for most of, for a lot of people, of younger people, Facebook is, uh, is a source of information instead of the, um, of the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, for example. Um, and this process of changing the media uh, structure of the media world is even more advanced in the United States than in Germany. In Germany, we have this still this public broadcasting system. Uh, sometimes it's maybe the old fashioned. On the other hand, it offers you a standard of high quality journalism. And maybe we have to discuss about that. If this could be an idea to have something like um, a standard model or a standard defining model um, for quality journalism. Um, so our private uh, TV is on a totally different quality than in other member states because there is the orientation to the public broadcasting system. Yeah? And we still have um, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, the Handelsblatt, the Welt, Süddeutsche Zeitung und die Zeit as high quality newspaper and they are learning a lot about pricing in the media world, pricing in the online world. Yeah, it's uh, first there was no price in, or they tried to think something, and it, yeah, it's not so easy. But you have to change the business model, the business model. But I would say yes, um, this is the most important threat to democracy and uh, public sphere because democracy lives on the in the public sphere. At the end of the day, we have to interact. Uh, on the daily basis, we have to try to organize our daily life in cooperation. Otherwise, it's it's costly. It's uh, it's uh, of, of 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 high negative effects. And what we just realized um, in the United States uh, via uh, Twitter and uh, Fox News, Breitbart News, um, which may have the same impact as CNN and NBC and so on. 
I'm, I'm very happy that in Germany it's not such an, in, in, we are not such in the same <laughs> uh, stage. Um, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Um, but I have now a simple answer because in a freedom of press, it's, in, it's a remarkable um, um, point in our world of freedom and democracy and responsibility of the individual person. Freedom of press is so important. Um, yeah, uh, one lesson from the part from the from history is that the people should have experience with different life situations. If they have this, then the um, um, it's easier to understand. It's easier to have a have a talk. It's easier to cooperate. Make it simple. In the German regions, where in the 1930s, really no Jews lived. The anti-Semitism had the highest quality, wasn't the highest thing. So it was far away and you could tell the people something they had no chance to, to, uh, to accept this, they, they accepted or accepted not. And in the time, if the people have fear for interference from abroad or from other points, uh, they are very open to accept very simple arguments justice and uh, to bring this uh, to their heart and uh, that's from history I think it's very important that the uh, there, where the people have no experience with other styles with other with diversity for example with other kind of living then they, the the uh, negative assessment has some has is very powerful I see uh, I, I know our interview will gradually come to an end soon so maybe we can end on a couple quick questions about Europe's response to uh, coronavirus crisis kind of tie back to the beginning of our discussion because uh, in April of 2020 this year, you were appointed by a minister president of the, the North Heine Westphalia to a 12 member expert group to advise on the economic and social consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic in, in Germany. Um, do you, what do you think of the European response? Did it do better than, than the US? A lot of people are very pessimistic right now because they say, oh, Germany initially did such a great job. But even though Germany did such a great job, you have to go back to lockdown light right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think, first of all, our healthcare system is better as uh, some Germans are uh, <laughs> yes. saying. Uh, second, we had, uh, we started very early to react in springtime, for example. And second, and third, sorry, third, uh, the Germans are more willing um, to change their behavior. So otherwise it's not understandable why in Spain or in France, the infectious, the rates of new infectious are so high. Uh, even more high than in than Germany and in, in, in relative terms, in absolute and in relative terms, if you're looking on the, compared to the population. The Germans are stick a little bit more to the roots <laughs> if, the yes. if, the, if the government is saying that. Um, this has some negative points in the past, but just helpful today um, and um, to organize this better. And the German lender are powerful, as you know, not only the federal level, but also the German lender are powerful. And together it's something like a learning process. And things like this is, sometimes it's better to have the federalistic, a federal order than a centralist order. In France, everything has to come from Paris. And there's no way uh, for differentiation in the departments. In Germany, um, the, the power for 
kind of policy action is on the lender level. So they have to cooperate, they have to learn from one another, each another, and the, the federal level bring in the specific experience from that. We can organize this, we have uh, um, good networks in the healthcare system and all of us what's aligned with that. Um, yeah, from this side, I would say we had some luck also, but we have some advantages in our institutional setting. Uh, so the European Union just passed, I, I, I think, issued $20 billion worth of emergency coronavirus bonds. And, and this is a move that originally the German Chancellor Angela Merkel had originally opposed and, and mm. one that you actually had been advocating for and calling for. So what is the economic and symbolic significance of this policy? What do you see more or less come, come out of uh, the coronavirus crisis from the European no, side? It's, it's not really the first time that we have bonds from the European central level. The first time was in 1976. Uh, there was some specific uh, need for findings, also in this time for Italy. Um, uh, some traditions are holding on. Um, but uh, now we are um, in a situation that the that the government, the, the euro bond, a bond of the European Commission or European uh, from the central level will be accepted in the regulatory framework of our fin uh, financial architecture. And this is, I think, the most important point from that. There's a chance to have the, the, what I said, an appropriate finance, uh, financial, financial financing perspective for the investment union. Um, and uh, all the time, it was not really convincing to have no way, no chance to finance via bonds on the European level if you are in uh, uh, bring this money in public investment. So if you have public investment, European networks, railway network, infrastructure networks, uh, the energy networks, whatever, then it's a good idea to do it not from taxpayers' money, but from the capital markets and ask the capital markets. And European Union in the whole has a high standard. And uh, so they have nearly no, no interest rate to pay. I think, yes, it, it's a game changer. And uh, it was only possible for Angela Merkel to accept this in such a crisis in a normal situation. There was no way. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I guess the last question I will ask you before we end the show is since the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I mm -hmm. want to ask you, what would your punchline be for, for this interview? We, we talked about uh, the, the golden decade. We talked about exhausted globalization. We talked about European integration, the coronavirus crisis. What would be your punchline, your one takeaway for our listeners to walk away from this? Um, my optimism on European integration. Ooh. <laughs> That is a wonderful message to, 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 to end on, I, I, I guess. Uh, and also, how can people learn more about your work and uh, about uh, Ive's work? Uh, it's very easy. Um, look on our homepage, uh, www.kölln.de. Um, um, and if you are looking into the German Wirtschaft or German Economic Institute, you'll find that we do have also a lot of research in English. It's available. Uh, we, have, we are publishing on a daily basis um, our research and uh, if you have any question, don't hesitate to send us an email. Absolutely. And this uh, that was uh, our interview with Dr. Michael Hütte from the German Economic Institute. Thank you so much for listening today, for joining us. And uh, please uh, follow us on policypunchline.com. You may watch the video on, on, uh, on Policy Punchline's YouTube channel and follow us on iTunes, Spotify. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, and thank you again for joining me today, Dr. Hütte. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.